0: We now bring you the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast featuring the late Dr. Harold B. Seitler, founding pastor of Tabernacle Baptist Church and Ministries in Greenville, South Carolina. And now today's edition of the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. I want you to open your Bibles with me today to the Philippians. I'm going to read from verse uh, chapter number 2, verse number 6. This is a familiar and a beloved section of Scripture that we appreciate and we've committed it to memory, many of us, and use it oftentimes uh, in our preaching. Philippians 2, I'd like to begin with verse 6. Let me read verse number 5 as well. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who? Jesus, Christ, being in the form of God, being God. None of us deny that. I said a moment ago in my prayer that tithing is not debatable at Tabernacle. Uh, we just don't uh, argue the point of tithing. I practice tithing. I preach tithing. I believe the New Testament teaches tithing. I believe the Old Testament teaches tithing. I believe God set up tithing before the Old Testament when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. We don't argue tithing. I said that to say that neither do we argue about who Jesus is. It's a subtle fact an undebatable reality that Jesus Christ is God. And you come with any other idea to we at Tabernacle, we don't fellowship with you. We don't pray for you. We neither bid you Godspeed, lest we become a taker of your evil deed. A man who will deny that Jesus Christ is God is an evil man. You say, well, I think he was a good man and a great prophet but I don't believe that he was God well you're an evil man and you're so evil until we are forbidden to pray for you or to fellowship with you no we we, we part company we don't debate uh, as to who Jesus is we're trying to learn all that he is we're trying to learn what he is and we're trying to preach the whole counsel of the Lord And we're trying to study the scriptures and um, by the scriptures and from the scriptures find all we can about Jesus, but there's no doubt in the mind as to who he is. He is Jesus. He is God. Verse 6, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And that's the figure of speech, thought it not robbery. He is equal with God in every attribute. If you had a piece of paper or a blackboard and a, and a piece of chalk, and you could begin to write down the attributes of the Almighty, What are the attributes of God, God the Father? Well, you'd put in that list that God the Father is eternal. You would say that God the Father is almighty. Uh, You could write down, third, that God the Father is omniscient. That means he knows all things. Uh, You could write down that God the Father is loving, that he's forgiving and merciful. You could write down that God the Father is compassionate. You can write down also that God the Father is a God of judgment. And on down the list, you could write a lot of things about God the Father, uh, which are his attributes. And an attribute of God is the nature of God. And a long list of attributes you could write down. And then you put another column, and put at the head of the column, Jesus Christ, God's Son. Well, now you could duplicate everything that you've already written about Jesus. There is not one single attribute of the Father, but what God the Son does not have that same attribute. As the Father, he's a God of love. As the Father, he's a God of power. As the Father, he is eternal. As the Father, he's compassionate. As the Father, he's forgiving. As the Father, he's all-powerful. Right. There was nothing impossible with the Savior. Uh, He could speak in the winds and waves, obeyed his voice. He could speak and the dead came to life and got up and walked away. He could break five loaves and two fishes and feed 5,000 people and pick up 12 basketfuls left over. He could speak to the wind and the wind lied down subdued. He could speak to the waves and the waves would cease to roar. He's all powerful. Jesus is all powerful. Every attribute of God you find in the Son. So he was in, in the true sense of the word equal with God and when he declares himself to be equal with God he's not committing robbery he's not being presumptuous the Pharisees indicted him as being uh, presumptuous why they said he uh, uh he claims to be God he claims to have the power of God and they they accused him for claiming to have the power of God upon his life but we know that he does have the power of God he is God very God in him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I believe that. You believe that. We accept that uh, here at Tabernacle. Now look at verse 6. But he made himself of no reputation and took upon him, upon himself, the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. Now, he did all this voluntarily. In eternity, he was not as a servant. In eternity past, he was not in the likeness of man. But in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he made himself of no reputation. By that, uh, Paul is saying that when he was born, he chose to be born of a peasant girl named Mary. Rather than into a palace of Herod or Caesar in Rome. He made himself of no reputation. He took upon himself in his earthly sojourn the form of a servant. When he could have selected to have come into the world in the form of a king and been born into a royal family. But instead of that, he chose to be born in a very humble family, that of Mary the Virgin. And by that, he took upon himself, made himself of no reputation, and took upon himself the form of a servant, voluntarily, deliberately. That gives you an insight into the kind of God Jesus is, a kind of God God the Father is. What condescension, it overwhelms my soul that God the son would be willing to become what he was in his earthly sojourn. To be my kinsman redeemer and to have his own priesthood perfected by suffering, by sweat, by toil and by labor. And in those things is he my faithful and merciful high priest because at every point he was tempted as I am and yet without sin. Therefore, he's able to succor you and I. And without that experience, he might not have been able to succor you and I that are tried and tested by the disappointments and the hard places in this sojourn. He made himself voluntarily of no reputation. He took upon himself voluntarily the form of a servant, not that of a king. He was made in the likeness of a man, not in the likeness of Gabriel, a micro. He was over both Gabriel and micro, but he chose to become like of of, of the man and being found in fashion as a man having been born of the virgin having been born seed of the woman having been made son of man I never cease to marvel at that terminology that we find especially in the Gospel of Matthew son of man son of man 87 times in the New Testament Jesus is called son of man I, I marvel at that when I know and you know that he's son of God that he's very God, God incarnate. He's uh, the same God, the very God that spoke the worlds into existence that made man out of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living soul. Without him was nothing made that was made. All things were created by him and for him we are told in the word of God. And yet he humbled himself. And took upon himself the form of a man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. And that's the most humiliating thing. No doubt the Savior ever allowed himself to be subjected to. I'm sure that it was humiliating when the Jews began to say he is the prince of Beelzebub. I'm sure that it was humiliating when they said he is a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber and a friend of publicans and sinners. I'm sure that it was humiliating to the Savior when they said nothing good can come out of Nazareth. And I'm sure that he was humiliated when they said are not his brothers with us? and they're just ordinary men, he could be no more than they. All of that was humiliating to the Savior, but the most humiliating thing in all of his lifetime was his trial, his, his indictment by Pilate, his crucifixion upon Calvary's brow, and all the shame and the agony that went along with that was the most humiliating experience in all the life of the Savior. He became obedient under death, He humbled himself and became obedient under death. Now, my friend, Jesus could not have died otherwise. He had to voluntarily his life down. He had to deliberately become obedient under death. Has it ever occurred to you that Jesus could not have died accidentally? Now, I can die accidentally, and sometimes folk do have uh, tragedies and die accidentally. Mr. and Mrs. Thompson were in an automobile accident this week. Absolutely not their fault. Carpool riding in ahead of them across the road. A head-on collision. They were not too seriously injured, we're proud. But their car was demolished. That's an accident. And oftentimes things like that happen. That are accidents in your life and mine. We don't plan them. They take us by complete surprise. Jesus couldn't die that way. There could have never been an accident in the life of Jesus. He could have never been killed. And the reason he could not have died accidentally was because he laid his life down. No man can take the life of he who is life. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he's life personified. And his life could not have been taken any other fashion, any other way, except to have it laid down upon the cross. Actually, the crucifixion didn't take the life of our Lord. Those two men on either side died a natural death. But Jesus yielded up the spirit, bowed his head, and cried with a loud voice. And dying people don't cry with a loud voice. Dying people whisper, sometimes not even a whisper. For when Jesus died, his strength was not diminished. He cried with a loud voice. A dying man does not bow his head. A dying man has no control over his head. But when Jesus came to die, he bowed his head in his own strength, in his own will, in his own time, and gave up the Holy Spirit. His death was deliberate. His death was well planned. His death was from the foundation of the world. His death was substitutionary. His death was in God's economy. In order that my soul may be redeemed before God ever flung the stars from his fingertips. He planned that his son die that kind of a voluntary deliberate death upon Calvary to pay my sin debt in yours. He said no man taketh my life from me. Pilate doesn't take it from me. Pilate said to him what is truth? And ordinarily, any man would have, would have grabbed at that opportunity to have argued with Pilate because Pilate is just about ready to turn him over to be crucified. But Jesus ignored him, didn't even answer him, didn't even give a reply. And Pilate rebuked him and said, you're not going to answer me? And Jesus made no answer to Pilate. Jesus is obligated to answer no man because he's God, very God. Pilate was the Roman governor. But I mark you the one that he's judging is greater than Pilate could ever hope to be. And Jesus now obligated to answer Pilate, or you or anybody else. And he made no reply to Pilate's inquiry as to what is truth. Had he made a reply, Pilate wouldn't have believed it. Had he made a reply, Pilate would have argued about it, like some people in our day. So Jesus didn't cast his pearl before a swine. He became obedient under death. Even the death of the cross. Oh, what a savior me and you have. He laid his life down upon the cross to pay my sin debt and to pay yours. Amen. Then verse 9. Wherefore, because of this, from eternity past, God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. Now, the world doesn't want it to be so. But God made it so. Kushev. And Bresnik and some of the rest of the worldly uh, uh, famous communists would like for their name to be a household name. But their name shall perish with their perishing. Their name shall be forgotten when they fill their graves. But the name of Jesus goes on. God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. And that's so today and shall always be so. Somebody said, Brother Harold, don't you think maybe the gospel is losing its appeal? Don't you think the church is failing in its mission? Don't you think the multitude of people may be turning away from the the gospel of the New Testament? Maybe. Some people may. But when one becomes an apostate, God shall save another. And the day will never be that the stones must cry out praises unto God. Because God's going to have saints... Bless His holy name. You say, "Well, I'm not going to praise God." Maybe you won't, but God will save some other old plowboy and set him on fire, and he'll praise the Lord. God's given him a name that's above every name, and every knee, every knee shall bow and on down the line. Now look at verse ten. That at the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. I bowed mine already. How many of you bowed yours? Let's see your hand. Every knee should bow at the name of Jesus. Now my soul, I take that literal. If you don't bow your knee voluntarily, you one day shall bow your knee involuntarily. Yes, sir. If you don't bow your knee out of humility and grace and faith to the Savior, one day you shall be compelled to bow your knee. That's right. The Hitlers and the Mussolinis and the Nebuchadnezzar's and all the mighty monarchs and potentates down through all the centuries shall bow their knee to the Savior. Every man shall bow their knee to the Savior. That in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in, in of things in earth, of things in heaven, and of things under the earth. And that covers everybody angelic, a human being, everybody shall bow their knee. And not only that, but that every tongue, you've got a tongue. Everybody has a tongue. That's a part of our body, a member of our body. And all of us have that tongue, either plagued with it or blessed with it. We all have it nonetheless. That every tongue shall, shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now I made that confession. I now make that confession. And I plan to continue making that confession as long as there's breath within my mortal body. Every tongue shall confess. How many of you have confessed it? Let's see your hand. Some people have it. But every man will. Can you imagine an old drunkard and a cusser? A profane man being compelled to confess Jesus as Lord. He doesn't want to. He'd rather fill his mouth with blasphemies and profanity. He'd rather cuss God and cuss his family and cuss his community and cuss his country and cuss his enemies. But the time's going to come when that little member is going to be forced to uh, to, to confess God. Now it'll be too late. That kind of confession doesn't save. You bow your knee voluntarily and you confess with your tongue voluntarily and you can have eternal life. But if you wait until you're compelled to bow your knee, until you're compelled to confess him, it's too late and you'll die to spend eternity in hell. But every tongue will confess. Al Capone, John Dillinger, all the famous notorious criminals of past or present day will all confess. Even the old wicked antichrist will have to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now you can confess that now and be saved. Or you can confess that then and be damned. But you're going to confess it sometime or another. Every man will either bow his knee and confess with his tongue now or later. One or the other. Now I want to use verses 9, 10, and 11 as a text. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name. That is above every name, that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that he's God, that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now I want to point out a few things about the Lord Jesus today. I've uh, tried to expound these verses and taken up much of the time in doing that. This is a wonderful text. I hope you have it underscored in your Bible. I hope you'll commit it to memory. I don't know of any more precious section of all the Bible than Philippians 2. Beginning with verse number 6 down to verse number 11. In his birth, number 1. In his birth, he is my kinsman redeemer. Here's something that overwhelms me. I don't know that I can fathom the height of it, the length of it, the breadth of it. How that God in Christ... Has become my kinsman redeemer by his miraculous birth of the Virgin Mary. A kinsman redeemer is a valid part of the economy of the law in the law of Moses. Moses set up uh, the administration of the kinsman redeemer. The most perfect illustration I know of a kinsman redeemer in the Bible is that of Boaz and Naomi, along with Ruth, the Moabite girl. There was a family that lost everything uh, in the death of the father of that family. They moved out, sold all they had, moved out to the land of Moab, and for 10 long years sojourned in a pagan land. And when they finally arrived back to Bethlehem, Judah, they came to nothing. They had no homestead. They had no farm or ground to till. They had nothing to cultivate. They came back in rags and tatters and in Nothing. But somehow or other, in God's great economy, it was God's HAP, H-A-P. There's the word used in the King James. It literally means, in the providence of God, Boaz fell in love with that Gentile girl. That's a strange thing, an unusual thing. Boaz is a wealthy Hebrew. He could have commanded the hand, no doubt, of any fine young Jewish maiden in all of Bethlehem, Judah. But instead of that, his eyes fell upon a Gentile bride who had already belonged to another. A widow, young widow, Ruth the Moabites. And in spite of everything, he fell completely and totally in love with a Gentile bride. You don't explain that. That was in the providence of God, in the hap of God, the H-A-P, in God's providence. Tell you the truth, you can't explain why Jesus, a Jewish Messiah, would love you. But brother, don't tell me he doesn't. <laughs> uh, you not explain how it is that you and I, who are not gen- no, who are not Jewish, but who are Gentiles, could move into God's great program and become part of the spiritual seed of Abraham. But brother, we are. I'm not a Hebrew. I'm not a Jew. But I'm an heir of, of the throne of God. The heir of the riches of glory. And all of that's mine by a Jewish Messiah. And who loved me when I was unlovely, unwanted, when I'd already belonged to another. And I was in rags and tatters. In my hand, no price do I bring. And I couldn't bring anything to the Lord. I provided the sinner. He provided the grace. And when Boaz fell in love with that young lady, he immediately began planning how he could buy back, redeem everything that Naomi had lost. And you know the story, climaxed in chapter number four of the book of Ruth. How that Boaz bought back that lost parcel of land and said it's to be deeded to Naomi and I want Ruth's name put on that deed. And in the last chapter he took Ruth and she became his wife, his bride. That's kinsman redeemer. And we Gentiles enter into God's great program right at that particular point. I'm not into God's program because I am the physical seed of Abraham. There isn't, as far as I know, one drop of Jewish blood in my veins. I guess I'm just as far away from the blood of Abraham as a man can be. I don't claim to be a Jew. I envy the Jew. I'm a little bit jealous of the Jew. I admire the Jew, and I respect a man of Israel with all my heart, but I'm not a Jew, not even one drop of blood in my veins as Jewish. But I want you to know that I'm an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. And though he is the king of the Jews, he is my Lord and my Savior by the right of a kinsman redeemer. Now, preacher, how in the world can you figure that out? Well... Jesus, who is God, came down from heaven into the womb of a virgin and got born of a woman, the seed of the woman that God talked about in Genesis chapter number 3. And when he became seed of the woman, that was God in the flesh, entering into the human bloodstream. And he became son of man by this great condescension, this great miracle of the virgin birth. I submit to you that jesus christ in the arms of mary is not less than god in eternity past i believe that when jesus christ was baptized of john old john put his arms around the neck of god and put him beneath the water i don't think jesus as son of man is one bit less than god not one bit less than god but He's more than that now. He's not only son of God, but he's a God-man. He was born of a woman. He has a fleshly body that he received from his mother. And in that fleshly body, he sweat. In that fleshly body, he wept. In that fleshly body, he suffered. In that fleshly body, he wearied. In that fleshly body, he ate. In that fleshly body, he laughed. In that flesh body, he was tempted by the devil in every point like his, you and I, and yet without sin. And because of that, he is therefore able to succor you and I. He knows my frame. When I have a temptation, I don't have to be ashamed to get on my knees and say, Now, Lord, you know about this. I'm sorry. I can say Jesus, you were tempted in the same point. You say, preacher, you mean the Lord was tempted exactly as I am? That's what the Bible says. The big difference is that oftentimes you and I yield to that temptation, but not one time did the Savior ever yield to that temptation. And as my kinsman redeemer in the flesh, he went to the cross and paid my sin debt. He couldn't die any other way. Had he not been born of the virgin Mary, You're not going to drag God out of heaven and nail him to a Roman cross? You see, the only way Jesus could die was to condescend to be born. See to the woman, son of man. And as son of man, he gave himself to the cross and yielded up his life. Paid the sin debt, received the fury of God's judgment in his body that I might go free. And in his death, he bought back for me everything that I lost in the fall of Adam. Amen, Amen, brother. And right now, I'm a son of God. You say you don't look like it. Maybe not, but I am. Well, you're not rich like it. Not yet, but I haven't come into my inheritance. Well, you're not in the right company. Maybe not, but I'm headed where that company is. And I'm a son of God by virtue of my kinsman redeemer, Jesus. In his birth, he's my kinsman redeemer. Number two, in his life, he's my example. And I well know that we're not saved by the example of Jesus. And I'd be the last person in the world to suggest that I'm saved. I suggest that you're saved by doing like Jesus did. When I was a young man, I read Charles Shelton's book, In His Steps. I think everybody ought to read the novel, it's fiction, but it's a very good book, In His Steps. How many of you have read In His Steps? Let's see your hand. All of you ought to read that book. All the young people ought to read In His Steps by Charles Shelton. We have it in the library. You can borrow it and read it. It's a tremendous thing. You really enjoy it. It's a good book. But in that, the whole theme of that novel by Charles Shelton uh, hinges around the question, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? The question is asked over and over again, in every attitude, in every relationship, in every crises, in every contact of life, the question was set forth, what would Jesus do? Well, I well know what Jesus would do, but sometimes to do that, I don't know how. I wished I could be like Jesus. Well, Dr. Rice sometimes sings a song, oh, to be like him. And when he sings that song, I get so burdened, so depressed, that song doesn't, doesn't stir me up, it depresses me. Uh, not that it's not a good song, not that it's not the truth, but to re- be reminded of what Jesus was and then, all oh, to be like him when I know I can't be like him, when I know I'm not like him, depresses my spirit, overwhelms my spirit. But We are to to follow his example as far as we can. We're to love like the Savior. In his life, he is my example in love. He is my example in faithfulness. He is my example in devotion. He's my example in sacrifice. He is my example in obedience.
1: In every area
0: in his life, he is my example. What one of us in this building today would have the audacity to insinuate that we've always walked in his steps. No, now I've obeyed the Lord in a measure. But when you put my obedience down beside the obedience of Christ who is obedient unto death, don't do that, please. Don't judge my obedience by that standard. You might judge my obedience by your standard, by your life, but pray, do not put my obedience down beside the obedience of the Savior. But because he was obedient, I want to be obedient. I've made some sacrifice in my life but don't judge my sacrifice by his standard because my sacrifice compared with the sacrifice of the Savior is unworthy of the mention. But because of his sacrifice, I want to be willing to make some sacrifice. I put a little offering in the pan a while ago. You put a little offering in the pan a while ago. Oh, but preacher, mine was large. Well, Compared to my standard, compared to your neighbor's standard, it might have been a large offering, but compared to Jesus' standard, wasn't much, was it? Just tell you the truth. What me and you put in the offering panel a while ago would hardly be worth the mention compared to the standard of sacrifice our Lord made. In his life, he's my example. In obedience, in sacrifice, in love, in devotion, in faithfulness, in labor, in right attitude, in prayer in preaching in every area he's my example oh to be like Jesus and then number three in his death he is my substitute the greatest event in all history is the death of our Lord how can you say that preacher when you talked at length today about his death and how how agonizing it was How can you say that the greatest event in all history is the death of Jesus when he died in shame and in pain, forsaken by both man and God? How can you say that's Yes, that's what it is, the greatest event in all history. And the reason it's the greatest event in all history is because in his death, he's my substitute. Had he not died, I would have died. Had he not paid my sin debt, i must pay my sin debt had he not died i could not have sang with you and brother melvin a while ago i could not have done it had he not died i could not look you in the face and preach from the text and i preach from to save my life had he not died and become my substitute paying my sin debt receiving the fury of god's judgment in his own body i'd have no gospel to preach I'd have no boldness to appear before the throne of God. I'd have no authority to drop on my knees and petition the Almighty were it not that in his death he paid my sin debt. And brethren, I want to say to you that condemnation is past. You're seated now in a congregation of people that's not marching to judgment but marching to Zion. You're amongst a group of people now whose judgment is already passed amen brother we're pilgrims and saints and sojourners headed to heaven we're going to heaven by God's grace isn't that glorious and all of that is mine because at his death in his death he is my substitute then again in his burial he is my sanctification the most wonderful picture of sanctification I know of in the Bible is the burial of Jesus Because as my sin offering, he received my sin in his body and the judgment of God upon his body and in his body. And when the Lord that body and put it in Joseph's tomb and rolled a stone at the mouth of it, it symbolized to me the truth that my sin is gone. Amen. Like Brother Tom Freeney says, my sins are buried in a Sadducee's grave from which there is no resurrection my sins are put behind the back of god as far as the east is from the west they're buried in the sea of god's forgetfulness my sins are gone i'm clean clean of sin clean of condemnation clean of judgment clean of hell clean of the past i've been through the blood the fountain open in the house of david and the blood has justified me and purged me and washed me from every blemish and spot or wrinkle that I might have had in all my lifetime. And I've come through clean as the driven snow. As old Dr. Lakin says, as the down upon an angel's wings I am by the virtue of the blood of Jesus. In his burial, he is my sanctification. Now, the old devil will come to you and he'll tempt you to believe that maybe you're not forgiven. The old devil will come to you and say, maybe God hadn't forgiven your sin. Maybe you're going to face your own sin someday. If you're in Jesus, you point the old devil to Calvary. Amen. And then you point the old devil to, a whole, uh, to an empty grave. And, and remind the devil that my sin offering paid my sin debt on Calvary's brow. And that they shut my sin up for three days and three nights. And rolled a stone to the mouth of it. And my sins are gone in his burial He is my sanctification. Then in his resurrection, he is my justification. I'm justified by his death, by his life. But the capstone of all of it is by his resurrection. Has it ever occurred to you the tragedy of a dead Jesus? Would it be a terrible thought? All our hymn book is in vain. We might as well disband the hymn book, close it up, burn it up, discard it. If Jesus is dead, every song we sing about is about a living Savior who came forth on the third day as he said he would do. All of our preaching is founded upon the reality of the resurrection of our Savior. My hope, my inward joy and peace is founded upon the fact That he came out of the grave. And by his resurrection. I am justified. Amen. Justified. Now I'm guilty. But I'm justified. And the reason I'm justified. Is because the sin debt's paid. You know when God forgave me. He didn't say now son you're not guilty. He said you are guilty. And I agreed with God that I am guilty. But he said the reason you're not now. uh, Under judgment. The reason you're now justified is because jesus took your place he took your guilt and he received the fire of god's judgment in his body so you could go free and that's why i stand off and sing amazing grace how sweet the sound and that's why i love to talk about the gospel and preach about jesus he did so much for me my friend i wouldn't have any boldness before god in myself not in the least i'd have no standing before god not in the least Were it not for a suffering savior Who paid my sin at calvary Did you get that please In his resurrection he is my justification Then number six In his ascension He is my advocate Amen I like to think about that These fellows that came up with the idea that God is dead Don't you feel sorry for them Uh, How pitiful I don't guess they can whistle anymore And I'm sure they don't sing anymore And I guess they have to keep a lot of aspirins and sleeping powders around to sleep at night. It must be awful to have a God that died on you. Wouldn't that be terrible? Wouldn't be too terrible for you to die on God because you're born by angels into his bosom. But for God to die, brother, that's awful. But you know, my Savior is alive today. He came out of the grave on the 17th day of April, the first month in the Jewish calendar. He walked on this earth 40 days and taught his disciples and communed to them about things eternal, things spiritual, taught them out of the scriptures for 40 days. And on the 40th day, he went up to the Mount of Olives and gathered that little group of disciples about him and gave the last charge and commission, the great commission of a read in Matthew 28. And when he gave that commission to his 12 disciples, he began to rise. I preached to the other Sunday about it. And they, they watched him as he receded out of their sight in the sky. And then God said to angels and said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye here gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus whom you've seen go into heaven shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go. Now when, when Jesus went up, where did he go? We believers know the Bible tells us where he went. He's not in Jerusalem. If you went to Jerusalem today, you'd come home disappointed about one thing for sure. Because in all your travels in Jerusalem, though you may go to the church of the nativity where he was born, though you may go to Nazareth where he was read up, though you may go to Capernaum where he abode as a preacher, though you may go to the temple where he taught as a rabbi, and though you may go to the Mount of Olives where he communed as a man of prayer, and though you may visit uh, the ancient city where oftentimes he visited himself, though you may go across Olivet Mountaintop, To Bethany, where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. You'll not find the Savior in any of those places. He's not there. And you come away just a little bit depressed. Uh, You you go to the church of the nativity in Bethlehem. And uh, they carry it down into the basement uh, below the floor level of the church. And that, by the way, that church is one of the oldest standing churches. Usable buildings in the world. It's 1,400 years old. 1,400. Built 500 A.D. The Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. is still standing. A magnificent building. Oh, but it's magnificent. But now you go down in the basement. And they say right here is where Mary delivered her newborn babe. And you can't hardly doubt it. I'm well, The Bible says it was born in Bethlehem. If it wasn't right there, it was close by. Had to be right there. There somewhere because the Bible says he was born in Bethlehem of Judea. And you look at that and you think about the babe in the arms of Mary. And you visit the other places and you think about the Savior. But when you board the airplane to come home, you remember that you, you haven't found him. He's not there. And he's not. But I know where he's at. When I flew across the waters coming home, I knew exactly where he was. Amen. We know that he's at the right hand of the throne of God on high right now. He went back to heaven and sat down by God at the right hand of the throne of God. And the Bible says he ever liveth. He stays there. He's been there 1,900 years and he's going to stay there until his second advent. And he's doing one thing. He's pleading for me and for you as our advocate before God. The old devil comes to God like he came to God about Job And he came to God about Job and said, "Uh, God, Job's a first-class hypocrite. And he really doesn't love you. And God said, devil, you're a liar. He does love me. devil said he doesn't love you. And I can prove it if you'll let me. Aren't you glad the old devil has to say if you'll let me? If there are any demons around, I want you to know that I know your dad has to get permission (laughs) to do anything against me. The devil can't touch me unless God gives him permission. Well, God allowed the old devil to sift Job. And Job went through a great deal. You know the story well. But in all of that, the Bible reminds us that Job did not accuse God foolishly. He maintained his integrity and came through that trial with flying colors. And the old devil had to admit that he failed. Now, the devil does that to me and you. Don't you guess he goes up? To god every once in a while and he says now that deacon down at tabernacle he's a he's a hypocrite he doesn't love god or that singer down at tabernacle he doesn't love god are these people down here they're a bunch of hypocrites or they don't really love god while the devil's constantly accusing me and you before god but you know one day many years ago my name was written in the lamb's book of life and when when the old devil accuses me before god i imagine jesus looks and says father That's the devil now. And he's accusing one of your children. His name has been written in the Lamb's book of life by the virtue of the precious blood that I gave at Calvary. And God says, fine son, that's all right. Then he says, devil, go on to hell where you belong. He's my child. He's been saved by grace divine. He's my advocate. He pleads my case. When I need one to stand in my place, he stands until I get to heaven. Now, when I get to heaven, I won't need uh, him to be my advocate then. Uh, I can bow down at his feet and worship him throughout eternity. But until I get to heaven, until you get to heaven, he's my advocate. These things write I unto you, that ye sin not, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And here's an advocate without price. Here's an advocate without bribe. Here's an advocate without injustice. Here's an advocate that'll do right. You can count on him to do right. Yes, in his ascension, he's my advocate. Then in his second coming, he's my blessed hope. The second coming of Christ is the hope of the dead in Christ. The second coming of our Lord is the hope of the nation of Israel. The second coming of our Lord is the hope of the church in this age of grace. The second coming of our Lord is the hope of the gospel as we proclaim it around the world. The blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God. In his second advent, he is my hope. The second coming is the hope of the aged, the infirm, the sick. Thou hast given him a name that's above every name. Thank God I know Jesus as Lord and his Savior. The theme of our church, the melody of our song, the doctrine of our faith is Christ crucified upon Calvary. May we bow our heads in prayer. Our Father, we come to thank you for Jesus who paid our sin debt, who died upon Calvary, that we could go free, pardoned, justified, forgiven because of his atoning blood. Now, Lord, if there's one person under the sound of my voice, either by radio or in this building, that needs to get right with God, let it be today that somebody may come to the Savior in Jesus' name. We thank you for listening to the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. If this sermon was a blessing to you, please share and invite others to listen and join us next time on the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast.